What's up, gamers, and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And in this episode, grab your axe and get ready to strap into the Animus to go on an epic journey into Norse mythology and 9th century Viking-ravaged England in my review of Assassin's Creed Valhalla. You intrigue me, Wolfkist. Orphan and sibling, warrior and poet. You are many in one, it seems. Sigurd! <laughs> I missed you, brother. Ranti, your husband returns, bringing gifts and riches to share. And new friends, I see. We cannot stay in Norway, not without fueling more war. So we push forward. A new kingdom awaits. From here to Valhalla, I will always be on your side, Sigurd. Always. Sigurd, I give you England. This land already has many rulers. From the cunning King Alfred of Wessex, to the warmongering sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, they have no wish to share the kingdoms they have made their own. I do not fear these men. Or any others who would harm us. These lands bring our people hope. I will do whatever it takes to make England our home. The Saxons hunger for Norse blood. Let's give them a taste, brothers. These conquests have given you a home, but there is more to this land, Eivor. A darkness unseen, an unknowable threat. One bound to England's destiny. Before we jump into the details of this game's story, let's take a few minutes to check out some interesting facts that you may not have known about the game or its developer in The Breakdown. Gamers, if you didn't know, the main character of Assassin's Creed Valhalla is Eivor. But there's a big story behind Eivor as a character and specifically their name. Now, from conception of this game and this character, Eivor was always supposed to be female, and only female. No male option. But Ubisoft higher-ups told developer Ubisoft Montreal there had to be a male option. And we're not going to get into the politics of it, but we've seen this happen numerous times in the Assassin's Creed franchise, where the higher-ups were afraid to have a concrete female protagonist. Now, the female aspect of the name of Eivor is proven right there in that name as it is, in fact, a female given name in Nordic culture that means defender. And it's also evidenced in the last name of the character, which happens to be Varen's daughter. So you think about it, that last name, Varen's daughter, it's done in the way of the times and in the Viking culture, the way they did their last names. So think about it. Eivor is the daughter of Varen, so therefore her last name would be Varen's daughter. And another interesting fact about Eivor's name, it actually was not initially going to be Eivor at all. The original name given to the character by Ubisoft Montreal was actually Jorah, until they consulted with Norse expert Jackson Crawford, who kindly explained to them that Jorah, in fact, means horse in Old Norse. So... Ubisoft Montreal quickly found a great alternative in Eivor. Now let's go check out this game's story.
In every Assassin's Creed game, there are always two storylines, the present day and whatever time period the new game may be set in, the storyline that takes place during that time period. Now, in this review, I will be discussing both independently and then the overall story as a whole. So obviously, first up, we have the present day. And in Valhalla, it picks up right where the final chapter of the Fate of Atlantis expansion from Assassin's Creed Odyssey ended. So if you didn't play that, I'll just kind of do a very brief synopsis for you. Layla, she is the main protagonist of the present day story and this trilogy of games that started with Origins, continued into Odyssey, and now is in Valhalla. Now, she is the main protagonist in the same way that I would consider Desmond was the present-day protagonist for Assassin's Creed's 1, 2, Brotherhood, Revelations, and 3. Now, without going into spoiler specifics, let's just say that Layla, who has been working with the present-day Assassin Brotherhood and directly with characters Sean and Rebecca, and they've been around the series for a while now, she's been with them and trying to work together to ultimately stop the apocalypse from still happening. Now, these guys have received a sort of a distress signal from an unknown source coming from a location in modern-day Newfoundland, which used to be known as Vinland. So, of course, they pack up their portable animus and head to that location. Now, to catch you up on the speed with what's happened at this point in the present day, there was a sacrifice made in 2012 to protect the world from impending destruction. And let's just say things were thought to be okay at that time. Now, quickly, this was realized to not be the case, and it is apparent to Layla, Sean, and Becca that further things are going to need to be done in order to fully and completely save the world, which is what leads them to this location in Newfoundland, and it's a specific geographical location given in the previously mentioned satellite signal. Now, upon their arrival, without getting into every little detail here, guys, let's just say they are led to the discovery of the remains of a former Viking with ties to the Assassin's Brotherhood. Namely, this Viking is Eivor. Now, once they realize this, it is without question time for Layla to jump back into the Animus and find out why they were brought here and what part Eivor may have played in it all, as well as what ties the Brotherhood, possibly the Templar Order, the running antagonist of the whole series. What do these societies and groups have to do with this location and with this signal? And that's where I'm going to leave the present day story before I get really too into my thoughts on it. And let me just talk about Layla for a second. Guys, I loved her addition to the present day story and Ubisoft returning to having a dedicated character that we as players can go back to in the present day that we actually care about. Because for a few titles, guys, they took that option away from us. They turned it into, for a few games, a first-person perspective. Hey, you're playing as an Abstergo employee. And Abstergo is kind of the front company for the Templar Order in present day. But once they realized, I think, that that was the wrong move, and we didn't get as good of a connection as a player to these games as we did with Desmond without a character like Desmond, they made the right decision in Origins to bring back that type of character in Layla. And, you know, I will say at first, I loved her. And in Odyssey, her character got a little bit rocky for me. But I will say, after having completed Valhalla and seen her through her whole story arc, or what I would assume may be her whole story arc, I think that she is an awesome character in addition to this series. Now, another huge thing that this did was get me as a player, as well as others that I know, reinvested in the present day aspects of the series again. A big thing, though, probably the biggest thing about Layla was her lineage reveal, which was a really awesome moment for me. And ultimately, I just absolutely love what Ubisoft did with this character. Now, as for the present day storyline of Valhalla specifically and my thoughts on it, I felt that it was excellent. There is a certain sense that just the stakes were raised and the threat that the group is trying to prevent. And the whole time, it feels like time's running out. And that mindset is definitely present at all times in this game. Now, the cabin that you come to where this 
satellite signal was coming from and its surrounding area. You can explore when you come out of the Animus, and the area is, in my opinion, just spacious enough to feel good about your exploration of the area. And as usual, the files, both audio and text, on the laptop that you can find in the cabin, they have some great ties to previous games, as well as some answers to previous questions, and a ton of Easter eggs, which are usually my favorite part. Now, outside of the laptop, as you progress through Eivor's story and you come out of the Animus and back to the cabin, there is always new information and stories to read and interact with in the form of objects that may be laying about or papers and documents on cork boards around the cabin. There's just a ton of fun, interesting stuff to read and to discover if you're a big Assassin's Creed fan. So make sure to periodically hop out of that Animus and check out all those new additions as the story progresses. Overall, I have loved where Ubisoft has taken the present-day storyline, and given how Valhalla ends, I cannot wait to see what they do next. Now, that's just one story in the overall story of Assassin's Creed Valhalla. The other major part of this game's story takes place in 9th century England, and this story is Eivor's story. It's going to be spread over a prologue and 23 chapters, or story arcs, as they are called in the game. And it begins when Eivor is a child. And we see in the opening scenes, they face death, lose their parents, gain a new family, all under details that I will leave alone for you guys to enjoy on your own when you play the game. Now, when we flash forward in Eivor's life about 16 years, we see them around the age of 25, a loyal follower of their brother and clan, the Raven Clan, following the Norse way of life, trying to survive in the frigid, icy lands of Norway. And Eivor's brother Sigurd has just come back from this long journey away, and he's brought new friends with him that are from a mysterious group known as the Hidden Ones. And he also has newfound goals in his life that he wants to accomplish right away. Now, part of these goals is to, of course, offer a better quality of life for his people, the Raven Clan, and the land of England. Because of its rich lands and healthy coastline and plentiful rivers. But in order to achieve these goals, it requires an immediate departure for England. And the biggest problem here for Sigurd is that his father, who is the actual leader of Raven Clan, and Eivor's adoptive father, he has no desire to leave Norway for England, no desire to take action and to go back to war. It's too soon since the last war time that they just got out of. He will not have anything to do with it. Well, Sigurd will have no part of listening to his father and ultimately convinces Eivor and a small group of other clansmen to go with him. And they set sail for England and the promise of a new life. And it's once we get to England that the main bulk of the story really begins. And ultimately, this story initially is all about establishing alliances and putting into power those that Eivor and Sigurd can have in that position to best help their cause in England. Now, that cause really begins from the beginning with the settlement of Ravensthorpe. And this is where the small group of Vikings known as the Raven Clan are going to dig in and start a new life in this land of promise. Now, as the main story twists and turns over the course of these next 23 story arcs, there are a lot of amazing stories told and characters that you're going to meet. And I will say that while most of these story arcs made sense, I really felt that overall it was just a bit more than necessary to tell this story. There's two, maybe three story arcs in particular that honestly, guys, I felt did not even need to be in the game. At the very least, definitely not as main progressors to the main plot, maybe side quests or come later as an expansion DLC or something, but definitely not necessary to see this game's story to completion. Now, I will say I loved how expertly that story was told, though, and the style of storytelling with breaking things down into specific and individualized story arcs. I loved it, and I would love to see Ubisoft continue that format in further Assassin's Creed games, just honestly with a little less overall required to complete the main story. So instead of 23 story arcs, maybe we chop that down to 15. And that could be a more uh, consumable type storyline. Now, the way everything 
ties together, I thought was ingenious, in my opinion. And, and it's the best use of a game's period mythology yet in an AC game. Because the mythology of this era is a wonderful one. Of course, it was Norse culture involving Odin and Thor and Loki and Tyr, as well as locations like Asgard, Jotunheim, and more. And guys, these are all represented in amazing ways in this game's story. And I just, I loved it. I loved the way everything, again, tied together. And trust me, by the time you finish the game's main story, you are going to be shocked by a few things. Now, a lot of that shock is going to come if you're a longtime AC fan. And if you are, get ready to have your mind blown. Lots of surprises, a lot of answers that you may have been waiting for. Of course, we're going to have some new questions thrown our way about the mythology of the series. But that is something that I did feel the game did on a bigger scale than any other game in the series in a while. The ripple effects that this game's ending is going to have on the franchise going forward for what I believe is going to be multiple entries, it's that impactful. So overall, amazing main story and arguably my favorite in the series. Now, I will say that Ubisoft did a great job with side stories and side quests in the world, or world events as they're called in the game. And these are usually brief one or two objective quests that you can take on to help certain NPCs that are in need. And that can range from settling disputes to more Easter egg moments like meeting Robin Hood and his merry men. I did love these. I loved coming across them. And it was just awesome because it was bite-sized stories that you could just pick up real quick, not have to invest an hour in on each one. So I would love to see those return as well in the game going forward. But when we talk about stories, we can't talk about stories without having characters. And the characters in this game were some of the best I've seen in any game, not just in the Assassin's Creed series. They were that impactful to me, resonated that much with me, and they were so individual in their personalities. I just absolutely loved the entirety of seeing the character arcs, the growth of characters, the breaking down of some characters, the relationships built and brought down. There was just so much. I mean, so much here, guys, over the course of these 23 chapters. So first up, let me just talk about Sigurd the brother of Eivor. This character started off as someone that I honestly did not really care for too much. He came across very cocky to me, very much know-it-all, brushing off reality and the people around him that cared about him. And there is definitely some uh, downs. I won't even say ups and downs. I will say it was mostly downs, for me at least, through the course of the majority of this game. But by the end of it all, I loved what I considered kind of a, a wraparound for his character arc and ended up really appreciating his character and the relationship that he and Eivor had together. Ranvi is another huge character for me in this game, and she was a massive integral part of maintaining Ravensthorpe with Eivor and having the insight with him at the war table to decide where to go to next and which alliances should we forge and where to go to, not to mention a more personal relationship that may or may not happen, depending on your gaming choices. Bassam and Hytham are also two very interesting characters to me that played huge parts in this game's story. They are the friends that Sigurd, in fact, brings back with him as part of the Hidden Ones. And I would just kind of leave them to discover for yourselves as you play the game. But just know, very, very interesting characters. And the final specific character before going to Eivor, of course, that I'd like to mention that really resonated with me was King Edward. As an antagonist, ah, I can't think of a better way to have this guy in this game. And just, man, talk about character arc and surprises and shocks there's a lot of them in store for you guys just stick to the path <laughs> and i promise you the outcome is worth it but avor the main character the star of this game an absolutely amazing character i you know typically am not a fan in assassin's creed games and we have characters that i feel aren't about the brotherhood first and are less about being an assassin and part of the brotherhood and following the creed and more about their own personal gains but i didn't feel that avor was fully 
in that spectrum. That was more Edward Kinway from Black Flag. But I also know for a fact, Eivor never really felt to me as someone who was 100% on the side of the assassins. That just wasn't 100% where he was at. He, he or she, whoever you play as, was more about their family and their clan and doing what was right for friends and family. And that I can respect and that I loved about the character. And there was a lot of growth there from the character that we see and meet in the beginnings of the game in the prologue in Norway to the character we see at the end of the game. So that's all I will say about that. Absolutely amazing characters in the course of your play in this game. Absolutely loved everything that Ubisoft put forward into this game's story. Now let's go check out the game's graphics and sound. Gamers, first off, let me set the perspective here when talking about graphics and let you guys know that I played Assassin's Creed Valhalla on an Xbox Series X on a 4K TV. Now, the first thing when talking about visuals is I'm going to start with the character models. Now, in this game, the characters look great with a lot of detail and realistic movement and facial expressions. And there's lots of variation among those main characters and the NPCs, which is always nice in these kinds of games. It's always kind of jarring for me when I'm going around a village and every other person looks the same. Or even in some games, I've seen it where the main characters that are part of the ongoing story in the game, sometimes you'll run into a random NPC in a village that has the same face, and it's kind of like, uh, I don't think this makes sense. But oddly enough, I feel better that these characters look even better up close when you're in photo mode than in just a regular gameplay or cutscenes. When you can zoom in in photo mode, you just really see the details in their skin and the clothing and the gear they're wearing. It's honestly pretty insane, the level of detail that Ubisoft put into these character models. Now, some of the standout graphical moments involving the character models for me are the way the water effects looked on Eivor's cloak. As you come out of the water, or even if it's just raining as you're exploring the forests and hillsides of England, that rain or that water from a river or lake It'll actually drip off of Eivor, which, hey, we've been seeing that for years. But what happens is the way that the light reflection changes and the way the textures change on the cloak that Eivor may be wearing at that given time. It's just a pretty insane level of detail, again, that the developers put into this game that I absolutely respect. Now, moving on from character models, we talk about the environments. And visually, man... They are spectacular. The game does a great job, in my opinion, of offering a variety of environmental types for each region that you explore and giving each region what I always refer to as regional identities. Now, if you listen to my weekly Captain's Quarters episodes, you have no doubt heard me mention numerous times about a region's identity as I'm exploring it and going through a story arc and collecting all of its treasures. Now, what I mean by this, for instance, the game starts you in Norway, which is kind of a dark and muted coloring palette as far as that is concerned, but it's topped with white snow everywhere. Now, once you leave Norway for England, for the longest time, you'll be exploring the continent through many beautiful green forested areas and hills with jagged mountains to climb up. But after a certain point, you're going to start seeing browns and reds, purples and blues for flowers and leaves. Swamps and marshlands are also areas of travel and typically have a coat of fog that hover around them. All of these environments are gorgeous. And just as that level of detail in the character models is great, the same has to be said even more so, I think, about the game's environments. Guys, I just, I don't know how many screenshots I took in this game or how many times I just stopped to admire the beauty of what I was looking at. And the lighting effects really played a lot into this as it's such a beautiful thing to just kind of be riding horseback through the forest as the sun pokes through the branches and the trees and illuminates Eivor's face or the light from the flame of a torch Eivor's carrying that illuminates the path ahead of you as you're exploring a dark cave or cavern. And guys, the water also has to be talked about here as well as the game does have a great variety of it with ocean coastlines, rivers, ponds, swamps, and each location of water 
has a different shade of blue or brown or green coloring of its water depending on its environment. Now, the movement in the physics of the water is also done really well and looks, honestly, photorealistic in my opinion. If somebody were just to walk by and you had kind of left the screen up on the TV and it's kind of a photo mode shot of no characters on screen, just a distant shot of the ocean, they'd probably be hard-pressed to believe that it was a game. It's that realistic looking. Now, finally, when it comes to environments, I have to mention the architecture of the buildings and structures within England's cities and villages, even the ancient Roman ruins that you come across in the world. Each of these has just such a beautiful level of detail and design in them that at times it just felt unprecedented when compared to most other games that I've played. So for example, say you come across an old abandoned church with a cracked stone in spots and rows and rows of vines suffocating the structure all around and grass has grown up around its exterior. Then you walk inside the church and you see the dust covering the floor and the broken pews and other objects that are left behind the time and you can't help but wonder what happened here. And the fact that a lot of these structures and environments, they tell a story, it's one of the reasons why I think I fell in love with the game and its environments so much. So visually, I would say that Valhalla is in the conversation as one of the best looking games that I have ever played. So now we'll switch over to the audio aspect of this segment. And the first thing I'm going to talk about audibly here in Valhalla is the music. And let me just say that I felt it was the perfect orchestral score as usual in this series. Every Assassin's Creed game, I feel like they nail that orchestral score. There's always a kind of reoccurring theme in each Assassin's Creed game, and they always kind of alter it to fit the culture and the sound of the new location of the new game. And they've done it perfectly here. It hits the Norse musical sound and the Viking chants. Everything fits perfectly. And there's even a lyrically sung song at the end of the game that I just loved, guys. And it really reminded me of... The time in Red Dead Redemption 2, and even in Days Gone, where you're crossing a certain threshold in the game, and it starts playing a lyrically sung song that was written for that moment in the game, that's exactly what this song reminds me of. It was great. There's Viking songs that are sung as you sail around on your longboats, and what I would call idle exploration musical loop music is also really good here. So as you're just kind of wandering around the environment, every game has them. There are certain musical scores that are created just for that looping sound. And it's done really well here. So there's multiple styles and tones and melodies for different locations and scenarios as you explore. So if you're in a hostile area or a distrust area, those kinds of things, I loved all of them. They just kind of perfectly fit every moment. Now, when we talk about sound effects, everything is done excellent here, in my opinion, from the clash of swords and shields to the throwing of axes, the galloping of horses, the hustle and bustle of a busy city market, and even the quiet emptiness of the snow and ice-filled lands of Norway and Northumbria and England. Guys, the sound effects and ambience in this game really hit high marks for me. And the best of all the sound in the game, though, is the voice acting. Now, guys, I played as male Eivor, but my wife played as female Eivor. So there were times where I walked in the room as she was playing, and I did hear how that version sounded, and both were solid efforts. But I'll be discussing my experience with male Eivor. Now, I thought for me and my experience, the voice perfectly matched the character. Whether Eivor was happy or upset, making jokes and laughing or terrified, the tones and inflections were all done very well by the male Eivor voice actor. And all the other characters in the game, honestly, especially the main characters, and a lot of the secondary characters that you meet, they were all top-notch as well. The NPCs that you'll meet, while they were also really good, you could still tell that there was this minor disparity between their quality and the main and secondary characters in the game. So overall, Great audio with no complaints from me in any category. But if you really want that added level of immersion, I did play this game wearing an LS50 headset for a good portion of my playtime. So this next segment, let's find out if it was actually a lucid experience or 
was it just like I was sleeping? Gamers, when playing on the Xbox Series X, my headset of choice is the Lucid Sound Bluetooth Wireless LS50 headset. So anytime I'm playing a game on the Xbox Series X, I will give you my rating of how good is it to play with the headset? Is it worth playing with that headset? Does it make a difference than a soundbar, your basic TV sound? Is it Lucid or... Are we just still sleeping on it? That's the review score, lucid or sleeping. So for a good portion of my playtime in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I used this headset. I alternated back and forth between the soundbar and the LS50. And let me just say, if you are looking for immersion, this headset will give it to you. Whether it's feeling the wind on your skin as you're walking through a forest, or the moisture in the air from the periodic drips in a dark cave or cavern, or the hustle and bustle of busy city streets, this headset definitely draws you in. Spatial audio is also excellent here in determining an enemy's position from the direction of their voice, the crackle of a fire, and the charge of a giant bear or two. So will wearing the LS50 make you feel as if you're living out a dream and in the game's world? Or is it no different than being asleep, listening from a distance, like through a soundbar or a TV? I will give a rating of Lucid for all the reasons listed above. You are simply that immersed, much more in the experience and your environment when wearing the LS50 playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Now let's go check out the game's controls. During my playtime through Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I was using a standard Xbox Series controller. And the game controls from a third-person perspective with dual analog control, using the left analog for character movement and the right analog for camera. Now, both were done really well and felt tight and responsive. And the left analog stick, it does click in to have Avor sprint. And the right analog stick, when clicked in and held, will prompt Odin's sight, which is a, kind of a sort of a pulse wave that shows interactable objects and enemies in your environment. Now, a simple click of the right analog will lock onto enemies when you're in combat. And when you click both analog sticks in, it's going to bring up that beautiful photo mode. Now, when press the menu or start and view or select buttons, they both bring up the map screen and the menu system with all of its tabs to cycle through. And I'm going to go into the detail of those tabs a little bit later in the review. Now, when you look at the face buttons, the A button is going to allow you to parkour up and over obstacles as well as swim up towards the surface of the water when you are underwater. B is going to crouch Avor and cancel commands. X dodges in combat when tapped and rolls Avor when you hold it in. Y is, interestingly enough, the game's interact button. And ultimately, I really didn't have any issue with the default placement of the face button actions. The only one that threw me off was that Y button or triangle on PlayStation controllers, having that be the main interact button. Now, it was only initially jarring when I first started playing the game, and after a bit, it honestly became second nature. Now, the D-pad is pretty crucial in this game, which allows you to access just a lot of gameplay functions here, from switching to your raven in the sky for a bird's eye view of things, healing Eivor by eating rations that are in your inventory, whistling to call your horse, or to lure enemies if you're in the bushes, and it can bring up the quick action wheel, which is where you can equip a torch to see in the dark, meditate to speed up time from night to day, or vice versa, call your longboat, and put your hood up in areas of distrust, and much more. Now guys, the left and right bumpers are primarily used for attacking during combat, with the right bumper controlling that right-handed weapon, and the left bumper controlling your shield or secondary weapon, and the button you press when you want to parry or deflect an incoming attack. Now, speaking of combat, that right trigger is used as a heavy attack option, as well as to shoot arrows when you're using your bow which can be readied by pulling the left trigger. And both triggers, they really also act as an access to the ranged and melee abilities wheels, 
which allows you to pull off some really cool special moves that you can assign to your desired face button. So overall, I did feel button placements and functionality of the controls at hand were done very well and became second nature over my course of play. There were only a few minor issues that I did come across, and they were when parkouring and climbing. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I was so annoyed and frustrated in certain situations. So for instance, example, sometimes there will be collision detection issues when you're climbing and unresponsiveness when trying to parkour and jump from location to location in quick succession. Usually this happens to me when I'm trying to chase down those tattoo designs in their many locations around England. So typically these designs are floating up in the air and there's a starting point and an ending point and you have to chase after this thing and catch up to it before it disappears or else you have to start all over. And the whole purpose of this is to implement the parkour system. And it's very fast paced and you're usually jumping from trees to branches to poles sticking up out of the ground to rooftops and all kinds of stuff. And if it actually works, it's actually a really cool, exhilarating kind of moment. But there were multiple times where I would be chasing after these tattoo designs and say I would come to a point where I need to jump from the tree to this tall standing pole in front of me. Well, if my analog stick was just you know towards the right-hand direction, Avor would miraculously jump all the way to the right and completely miss the pole therefore causing me to have to restart the whole thing over again. It was just very frustrating. Numerous moments just like that in different scenarios. Now, the climbing inconsistencies, basically they would pop up a lot when I would try to climb a massive mountain face or certain buildings even where Eivor, he'd stop climbing and what would appear to be a climbable area or it would just be a chore to find somewhere to just even start climbing on these buildings and some of the villages and towns. But guys, these are really the only negatives that I had with the game's controls overall. Again, very solid control scheme and did me very well over 260 hours. Now let's go look at the meat and potatoes of the game and its gameplay. As we go into discussing the gameplay in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, gamers, let me just say that there is a massive amount of gameplay options in this game. There is just so much to do and so much to cover, so bear with me. I've got it broken down into a few different segments of main things that I want to cover that I think you should know about. And the first thing up is basic exploration and world traversal. Now, obviously, you already know that you're going to be controlling and playing this game from a third-person perspective. It's a third-person action-adventure RPG. Every single aspect of those subgenres are covered here. You're going to have all of 9th century England and Norway to explore, and there are many ways to get around these areas. Trust me, you got by foot, horseback, swimming, climbing and parkouring, or sailing around on your longship with your buddies. Now, as you explore, there's going to be many cities and tiny villages to see. There's caves and hidden areas to discover. But in all this massive space to explore, at the heart of it all, in England, is your community, your settlement of Ravensthorpe. Guys, I loved Ravensthorpe. You know, there's many games before that have had you do this kind of gameplay mechanic of owning and running a settlement, but I love the way it was implemented here in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. The way that after playing the game for many hours, it really does genuinely feel like coming home after a long journey when you've completed a story arc or whatever you've been out there doing, exploring in the world, and you come back to Ravensthorpe to tell Ramvi of your political success in a major story arc, or just to kind of touch base with the kids around the settlement, or touch in with a girlfriend that you may have who works at the Hunter's Lodge. Just little things like that really make this area feel alive. And there is so much important about Ravensthorpe, though, and how it affects your journey. So placed around Ravensthorpe, you're going to have different shops and residents to visit to perform functions like the blacksmith who can upgrade your armor and weapons, the docks where you can customize your longship, you have fishing and hunting lodges where you can return with your gains from each, and if you have the right furs or fish, you can actually trade some in for some special items. 
Now, there's also a general store where you can buy basics like ammo and crafting items and places like a bakery, distillery, chicken farm, and more that you can't get anything from them per se. But what they do allow is there is a option for a feast. And that is by ringing the bell at the longhouse, the center of your settlement. And when you perform a feast, basically these areas increase the stat buff that you get from having a feast. It also boosts Ravensthorpe morale. So there's also a lot of fun things to do and see in Ravensthorpe. You have some other interesting characters that kind of live on the outskirts of the settlement, like a seer who is kind of a fortune teller. She lives by the waterfall out on the outskirts. Or there's this man obsessed with recreating and collecting Roman artifacts that actually you bring back to him in bundles for settlement cosmetics that he'll make for you that you can place around Ravensthorpe. And there's Ultimately, Hytham, who is a hidden one, and he set up his own bureau there in Ravensthorpe, and he's going to be looking at you to bring back old Brotherhood Codex pages and order the ancient coins to him, which we'll discuss who the Order of the Ancients are briefly in a minute. But it was just so cool to see these new additions to the settlement and people that you would meet in your travels. Like they would just pop up at your settlement or take up residence there, or even animal friends. There is Wolfga, <laughs> is the name chosen for a very special pet of the community of Ravensthorpe that I've met in a previous quest. Just cool things like that. And the other piece to all these locations within your settlement, though, as they can all be upgraded, are offering different options to the player, depending on what the location is. So there's just so much that goes into that settlement of Ravensthorpe, and it was very obvious to me that Ubisoft really wanted to make it right and make sure that we as the players cared about our settlement. So another part of the settlement is upgrading it. You know, you have your basic areas that you build and locations that you set up. But in order to get the higher stat buffs or more options later on in the game of different items you can purchase at the store or cosmetics you can do to your longship, you have to upgrade that settlement. And in order to upgrade the settlement, you're going to have to do raids, which is something new for Valhalla. And essentially what a raid is, is you take your crew, which you can kind of customize your right-hand lieutenant, if you will, which I thought was pretty cool, and a few of your other Viking warriors, hop on your longship and take it down the river. And there are specific locations along different riverbanks that you can stop off, and some are more worth your while than others. There may be like tiny little forts that only kind of give you treasure or different basic wealth items. But then there's the ones that you really want to look out for and stop for, and that is the monasteries. These have what you need, which are the supplies, the specific supplies needed once you get to a certain upgrade or level of upgrade within your settlement locations. You're going to need this specific type of supplies, and they are only found in these monasteries. Now, what happens is basically you roll up on these people on the coastline and pull up on the shore. You pull out your horn and signal battle, and you and your guys jump out and basically run in and start just messing people up, throwing torches and lighting the roofs of hay on fire and just really laying waste to these areas. Kind of feels kind of conflicted as far as my conscience of what we're doing here, but in the context of the game and who you're doing raids against, which is the quote-unquote evil King Edward's men. So it made it a little bit easier to digest, but the bottom line is it was still pretty fun going through, destroying these areas and breaking into different churches or locations that had these massive chests that were where you really wanted to go to in these areas to get that supplies that was so crucial. So I did have a lot of fun with the raids, but I will say it was something that I made sure to pace myself on them and spread them out. I, it's not something that I would want to do just kind of back to back to back. Now, obviously, we're talking about sailing down the river, and that requires navigation. So when we talk about the map and the menu navigation within Valhalla, let me just say I felt the map was done expertly in this game. It's got a beautiful clarity to the world of England and Norway. And when I explore in a game, I love it to where I can do what I call defogging the map. So most games do this, where if you have an overworld map, it may start out, and basically it's a blank parchment and you as the player are required or expected to unlock the details of the map by exploring and as you explore areas obviously things become defogged as i call them now 
once that happens, the icons and just the map itself, the detail that's there, it's beautiful. And the legend that you have as an option here to kind of reaffirm, okay, this icon means that. I think they did a great job with really just supporting the player within this map. Because I've played games before where they either don't have a legend or all the icons represented on a map are not in the legend. And Ubisoft did a great job here. But I'll tell you, viewpoints, which are a staple of every Assassin's Creed game where you climb to the top of a massive tower or mountain and you press the Y button on Xbox to synchronize and you get this massive defogging of that cone of vision in that area. And they are what I would recommend doing once you enter a new region. I would make it a priority, knock out those viewpoints first, as it gives you that clearer understanding of your area. Plus, it also unveils all the collectibles and side activities that you can do in that cone of vision. So a beautiful, amazing world to explore, lots of different ways to explore it, amazing map to help you get through those areas. And the menu navigation is pretty solid, too, when you're trying to navigate through this map. The zoom in, zoom out, and I thought it was done very, very well. Next, I want to talk about combat in the game. Guys, I didn't care for it at first, but once I got used to it, I felt that it was perfect. And there's two forms of combat in this game, melee and archery. And first up, I'll talk about the melee. So really, melee is focused on using a wide range of weapons from axes, swords, daggers, hammers, and spears. And even your shield can be used for more than just blocking. Now, they all felt unique and even sometimes different, whether you place them in Eivor's left or right hand, which I thought was pretty cool. But ultimately, in a fight, it just felt right. Locking onto enemies, dodging, parrying, blocking. It was all very fluid, visceral, and thematically perfect with the way that Ubisoft used camera angles on special moves or Mortal Kombat-style X-ray visions of hidden blades piercing internal organs and the crunches of bones that add just enough cringe to really sell the fight. It was good stuff, and definitely, I will say, my favorite combat in the series, probably since Syndicate. Now, you also have a long-range option with your bow and arrows, and as has been usual in the last three entries in this franchise, I feel, again... It's done expertly. There's three different types of archery, hunter, light, and my favorite, predator, which plays from a first-person perspective, which is obviously what I prefer to do when it comes to popping people off with a bow and arrow. Now, a light bow, that just pops off arrows in a rapid-fire style, whereas the hunter bow allows you to pull and hold before firing the shot. In both melee and archery, they have their own special abilities that can be very beneficial in certain combat scenarios, whether it's raining multiple arrows down on a group of enemies or slinging a blade attached to a chain scorpion style at an enemy to yank them towards you and then removing their head. There's just a lot of fun possibilities to play around with here. And I just loved, loved, loved the combination of all of these styles and weapon types. Now, I will say there was a few times that I felt the combat got a little iffy for me in certain scenarios where maybe I was overwhelmed by enemies and couldn't get anything going or certain button commands wouldn't work for me in the right scenario or I felt like it was just a little bit unfair, the disparity between power levels here between Eivor and the enemy types. But Ultimately, it was really nothing major to where it was a detriment overall to the combat. Now, when we're talking about combat, you want to be stronger and ever-growing stronger, right? Well, when it comes to a Valhalla, the way that is done is through your power level. So we'll talk about the power level and the leveling up system in the game. Now, you earn XP by defeating enemies, completing main quests, and doing side activities. And I felt the game was honestly pretty generous in the giving of XP, and it really it needed to be, given that there are over 400 levels of power in this game to strive for if you're trying to max out your Eivor. And each level is worth a skill point, and you can use these skill points to improve your health, skill with a certain weapon or bow, assassination damage, and acquiring new abilities to use in combat. And there are three different classes of abilities, or combat styles, there's Bear, Wolf, and Raven, and they each cater to a specific playstyle. So for instance, Bear, that's for the gamer who's more of a tank and just kind of goes in heavy with melee. Raven is for the stealthier gamer who prefers quiet assassinations and heavy use of their bow and arrows to get in and out of an area. And Wolf is simply a combination of the two, a good balance. 
Now these styles also translate into armor styles, and depending on what armor type you're wearing, you can actually increase the buffed stats for that class type when wearing, say, all wolf armor, as opposed to a wolf helmet and a bear chest plate and a raven leggings. So it's always best to try to stay consistent with your class type when wearing your armor. And I just, I love the layout of the skill tree in this game and the classes. And I really thought Ubisoft did a great job at setting up the navigation of it all and the form of constellations, as well as helping the player really easily identify what class they were navigating by the use of color with red for bear, blue for wolf, and gold for raven. Now, as we step away from the power level and the leveling up systems and things of that nature, we're going to talk about different things that you can do in the world the world events, and the side activities. These are some of my favorite things to do in this game. And first up, I will start with world events. Now, they were kind of mentioned in my previous segment of story because of how specific they are of individually having their own story. And these things were amazing. But the other piece to this category are the mysteries. And mysteries... They can be anything from eating a mushroom and then being so affected by the mushroom that maybe in some distorted way, you're going to have to figure out through visions how to solve a puzzle that's put in front of you or following different clues to lead you to an exit of this vision that you're having. You also have different things like legendary animals that are spread throughout the game world, like the last couple of Assassin's Creed games have done where they're these either mythological beasts or just massive giant versions of, say, a polar bear covered in icicles or uh, three rabid hyenas that are just massive in size, different things like that. But some of my favorite mysteries came in the form of animus anomalies. And these things are awesome. You kind of flash back between Eivor and then you go to play as Layla and she kind of steps in the in-between, I would say, of the past and the present and you have to either navigate and parkour these different platforming based puzzles or you have to use different lights and figure out the order of the lights to shine them on these areas to connect all these different kind of searchlights together to reach the end those i didn't like as much as the parkour segments but overall i love the story that was laid out overall of all of those animus anomalies, but also individually. It was just, it really kind of drip fed you that story and kept you, man, I can't wait till I see what the next animus anomaly is. So there was a lot of really cool stuff. Cairns, which are stacking stones. I got to tell you, as much as they frustrated me, I ended up ultimately looking back and appreciating them for what they were, where you have these different shaped stones and you have to figure out how to reach a certain height by stacking them correctly. And man, if they don't do an unfortunate, very good job with the physics in this game when using the cairns, because I tell you, there's nothing like building the cairns up all the way only to have that last stone topple the entire thing and have to start over again. Mm. Now, in addition to these mysteries, there are artifacts that are spread around the world. As I mentioned earlier, they're ancient Roman artifacts that you can bring back to the guy in your settlement and he'll eventually build up enough of these that you give to him to where he'll make you a settlement cosmetic piece. There's also wealth that is in the area and you can use these wealth. They're pretty much mostly just treasure chests, but a lot of times they will have armor upgrades or new armor set pieces. And they're usually, you usually have to explore the entire region in order to get that full armor set. And outside of armor, it could also be armor upgrading materials like ingots of different types. So very valuable stuff if you're looking to constantly upgrade your armor set and your weapons. Now, there's a lot of other smaller activities that you can do in the game. There's flighting, which is kind of like the rap battle of what the game is advertised it as. Uh, Viking rap battle before the game released, where it's kind of like a battle of words and wits and rhyming. There's drinking games, who can drink the most the quickest. Obviously, fishing and hunting is a, a lot of fun in this game as well. Uh, I love the fishing. And my favorite, though, is Orlog, which I would consider this game's version of Gwent. But it's not done with cards. It's done with dice and, you know, different tablets, if you will, or Odin powers, as they're called in the game. And I'm not going to go into detail of Orlog right here. But man, Orlog is, is a lot of fun. And it's so fun that I am all about getting a physical version of the game uh, to play as well when they finally release one. 
And as I mentioned earlier about those Order of the Ancients, so the Order of the Ancients essentially think of them as this game's version of the Templar Order. And the Order of the Ancients, there is a pretty sizable amount of them throughout the course of this game. And there's actually a tab in the menu system that you can go to and you can track certain Order of the Ancients members. Now, there are definitely ones that are higher up on the ladder than others. There's a hierarchy on this page. There are zealots that you're going to come across, these heavily armored, very skilled in combat, horseback riding members of the Order of the Ancients that kind of are out there riding around the different regions of England, kind of making sure to moderate the peace. And if they see you, though, they're going to probably lay into you if you get a little bit too close. Or especially if you attack them, they're going to come right at you. And you're, you're going to be in for a pretty decent fight if you haven't upped your power level to a certain point. Now, I will say I enjoyed fighting these zealots. They each kind of felt unique in their own way and had a different kind of combat style to them. But it was really the members, the higher up members that I loved. And all you really do, at least for me, I always made it a point to try to kill them via uh, unseen assassination because you are supposed to be an assassin, right? So what happens is you, every zealot that you kill, you end up getting a note or a clue and sometimes these clues, usually they're anywhere from three to five clues per higher-up zealot or high-ranking Order of the Ancient member. And eventually, if you find all of, say, high-ranking member A, you find five notes by killing five zealots, and it tells you the location of where this higher-ranking official is. And you can designate them on your map and then go and assassinate them however you see fit. I love that. I love the whole system. It was great. And I hope they continue to implement something similar to that and even maybe expand on it somehow in the next Assassin's Creed. The final thing, though, in world exploration that I absolutely loved and my favorite side activity were the Hidden Ones bureaus. And these are long lost bureaus that were set up at one point in time in the past by the Hidden Ones. And usually it's a really cool cosmetically and thematically based area that you explore. And they're usually underground. And there's a lot of... I would say puzzle solving in the form of platforming and just kind of the environment being an environmental puzzle and trying to figure out how to get to the final room, which usually housed a codex piece of parchment that you can bring back to Hytham and also had an interesting story as well as typically a new armor piece to go towards the Hidden Ones armor set. And it was just these areas that had the assassin symbol, the brotherhood symbol, and it was just awesome. Every single one of them, I absolutely ate it up and loved it. So I know that's a lot, but there is a lot and so much to talk about when discussing what kind of gameplay you can expect when going into Assassin's Creed Valhalla. It really covers a little bit of everything gaming-wise. So you're going to be spending a lot of time in this world. So now let's go check out the game's photo mode and how good or not it was in capturing the amazingness of this game's world. Gamers, I am an absolutely huge fan of the photo mode, especially if it's a really good one, given what the options of it are. And because I love them so much and spend so much time in them, depending on which games have them, I decided when I do play a game that has a photo mode, I'm going to add this segment to the review. Now, there's a few specific things I look for in every game's photo mode, and that's what I'm going to be looking at to give it a final ranking at the end of this segment of a work of art, a collector's piece, or should the developers have gone back to a blank canvas and start over. So the first thing I look for in any game's photo mode is its accessibility. How easy is it to get in and out of the photo mode? Well, with Assassin's Creed Valhalla, it's just how I like it, which is one motion. All you got to do is click in the two analog sticks at the same time. Boom, you're in photo mode. And this is typically what I look for in every game's photo mode, the ease of access. It's one button prompt and you're there. So Assassin's Creed Valhalla absolutely delivers that. And I was extremely grateful considering how much time I spent in the photo mode. Now, once in there, next, I look at camera control. And in this game, it was excellent. The range of focus, the camera tilt, the zoom in and out, raising up or going down, circumference movement. 
It was perfect. It was free. And 100% of the control that came from the positioning and angling of the camera was excellent. Now, next, I'll look at lighting, filters, and details. And the lighting here, you can control the brightness, the tint, and even add certain color filters. But overall, I honestly, I would say it's pretty standard when it comes to these options. Photo modes nowadays, like Spider-Man Miles Morales, they've spoiled me to where I would love to see the control and positioning of the lighting, as well as that color of lighting in your hands as the gamer in every photo mode. Now, I get that may be a tall ask because it was just put out there in Spider-Man Miles Morales a little over a year ago. But again, now the bar has been set, we got to raise it. Next up is emotes, expressions, and characters. Now, in this game, unfortunately, there are no emotes, expressions, or posing options, which I was really disappointed in because I think they could have made for some really great, fun picks. But alas, no options here, so docked a few points on Ubisoft for that. Next up is frames, themes, and logos. What are the options? So far as frames, themes, and logos, there's really just a small selection of themes to choose from here. And I felt these were very basic, as in the Assassin's Brotherhood symbol at the bottom of the, in the center of a Norse-looking ribbon design that goes horizontally across the screen. I mean, come on, you can't get any more basic than that, Ubisoft. Or the game's title and logo front and center, which again, kind of boring, can't move it around. Now, I love logos in photo modes, but I like to have control over where in the picture they go. No control options for that. The lines that indicate an animus glitch or anomaly, that was another option here. But again, I just really did not feel it did anything for me. So I was ultimately disappointed with these options as well. Overall, I did thoroughly enjoy the many hours that I spent in photo mode throughout my journey, and I do feel like you can get a lot of great picks out of this game. However, the lack of emotes and poses and any cool frames to speak of, themes that did nothing for me, and no detailed lighting options, as serviceable as the mode was, I wanted more, guys. So, for a final rating of Valhalla's photo mode, was it a work of art? a collector's piece, or a blank canvas. Well, due to the specific callouts mentioned, I would have to say this photo mode ends up being a collector's piece. And my hope is that maybe in the next Assassin's Creed title, we will get the photo mode the series and we gamers truly deserve. Now let's go check out the ship's chronometer to see how long it took me to beat the game, as well as how long it may take you to beat the game based on your play style. Gamers, as I've mentioned numerous times throughout the course of this review, I spent just over 260 hours in the world of Assassin's Creed Valhalla. But what if you're not like me? Not everyone is. Not everybody goes to that depth. Sometimes you just want the story. And if that's the case, that's perfect. Because this story, as amazing as it is, you're looking at 23 story arcs, roughly three to four hours apiece, my guesstimate would probably still put you at dropping 75 to 80 hours on this game just to play through its story. Now, if you are here for the story, but also can get distracted and do some things on the side, not everything, but just play around in the world as you explore and go from story objective to story objective, I could very easily see you hitting 100 hours plus in this game. Now, if you are a completionist, and you're looking to do everything this game has to offer, the base game, and you're wanting to do all of the side content that's available, I'm telling you, you're probably going to be spending every bit of 200 plus hours in this world. It's a massive game with a ton of content. So now, how about we go check out and see what my final thoughts and review score are. In the end... When I look back over 260 hours of play spent in the world of Valhalla, I'd have to say that it was an amazing adventure. The story and characters carried the game for all that time, and the richness of the world of 9th century England and Norway was an absolute pleasure to explore, discovering all their secrets and 
ties to those who came before or the Isu. And I also loved what this game does in setting up the next phase of the Assassin's Creed franchise. And it has me really uber excited to see where Ubisoft takes the story and how they handle the present day going forward. Now, if I were to real quick throw out my three most hopeful locations and time periods for the next traditional Assassin's Creed, meaning not including Infinity, my most desired is a late 19th, early 20th century India. I just think it could be amazing. And a very close second would be ancient China, followed by Aya from Assassin's Creed Origins and the Roman Empire. Now, as for where Valhalla falls on my list of favorite Assassin's Creed games, I gotta put it at number two, just behind Origins. Origins still gets that edge for me for my love of Bayek, Aya, and that location of ancient Egypt. And the only things I really have negative to say about Valhalla would have to be those hiccups with the parkouring and climbing controls mentioned earlier, a little bit of inflated length with what felt like to me some unnecessary fluff to extend the length of the game for just really no reason. But outside of those areas, with all that being said, my final score for Assassin's Creed Valhalla is a 9.5 out of 10. That'll do it for my review of Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. Reach out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as find me on social media on Instagram at lostatseagaming and on Twitter at lostatseagamin, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing.